Good morning, this is Father John Arnold, and this is Oro Valley Catholic. You've probably seen the movie or read the book, A River Runs Through It, by Norman McLean. It's the memoirs, kind of fictionalized, of Mr. McLean, who grew up uh, the son of a Presbyterian minister in western Montana. And the family was a fly-fishing family, and if you love fly-fishing, you'll love the book. It's a wonderful story about family. It's the opening lines of Mr. McLean's book, A River Runs Through It, that I was reminded of reading the gospel today. And here are the opening lines. In our family, there was no clear line between religion and fly fishing. We lived at the junction of great trout rivers in western Montana, and our father was a Presbyterian minister and a fly fisherman who tied his own flies and taught others. He told us about Christ's disciples being fishermen, and we were left to assume, as my brother and I did, that all first-class fishermen on the Sea of Galilee were fly fishermen, and that John, the favorite, was a dry fly fisherman. That pretty much covers the ethics of fly fishing. My nephews fly fish, my brothers fly fish, and I don't think there's any more satisfying experience for a fisherman than to tie a dry fly and catch a big trout on it. And so the idea of the fisherman, that you're going out and searching, and everybody who's ever fished know they call it fishing because you fish, you don't necessarily catch. Fishermen are persistent. Fishermen are always hanging around likely holes or structure that might hold fish. Fishermen, especially dry fly fishermen like St. John, are always looking for those telltale rises, those little rings in the creek or the river that gives away uh, the trout below that comes up to sip dry flies like mayflies and midges off the surface. Well, in today's gospel, um, it's all about these signs. It's all about fishing because it's all about the gospel call. And so the story of the gospel is that Jesus walks along the Sea of Galilee. He sees these fishermen. He calls them. Immediately they drop their nets. And he says to them, I'm going to make you fishermen of men, fishers of men. Is that a believable story? Is that one of those poets' versions of the story? Or is there some deeper meaning behind it if you look at all of the gospels? Why did they respond so quickly? Why did they drop everything? And what's that have to do with the second reading, St. Paul, that says, if you're married, you're supposed to live like you're not married. What? And so what is the logic behind all of this? The big question every Catholic asks themselves at some point and has to come up with an answer that satisfies them. And that question is, why would anyone do this? So here's the gospel from Mark chapter 1, which was is the gospel for this, uh, for this Sunday. And remember, we had St. John's version of the same story last week. And there's a connection I want to point out. And so here's the gospel. After John had been arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. This is the time of fulfillment. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. As he passed by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting their nets into the sea. 
they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, come after me and I will make you fishers of men. Now, that's a great story. Everybody remembers it. But let's unpack it because there's a lot behind it. So what it says is, then they abandoned their nets and followed him. And then the story repeats itself as he calls James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Again, they immediately leave their uh, nets behind and they follow. Why would anybody do this? Why do they respond so quickly? Is it just a made-up story? Well, what about this? There are three reasons to think why this is actually what happened. And the first is this. If you remember John's gospel last week, it was from John chapter 1 about the calling of of the disciples. And you remember John's baptizing? He sees Jesus walk by. And then he says, behold, the Lamb of God. And his disciples left and followed Jesus. Do you remember? And they, 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 Jesus saw him following him. He turned to him and says, what are you seeking? Lord, where are you staying? Because this is discipleship, to stay with the Lord. Well, if you remember the Gospels, the three synoptic Gospels, John tells the story slightly differently because John is giving you some background that the other Gospels, like Mark, don't necessarily include. And the background is this. These disciples were not cold calls for Jesus. These disciples were already disciples of John the Baptist. They all knew each other from when John was baptizing along the River Jordan. And if you follow the Gospel of Mark and think of the story like this, John baptizes, Jesus gets baptized, Jesus goes out into the desert. It says 40 days, which as you know is always a period of fasting and purification where he's tempted by Satan three times. Then this story, he comes from being uh, tempted in the desert and succeeding. He comes and he immediately calls these disciples. Here's what happened in the meantime. John baptized, Jesus went out into the desert. John the Baptist was arrested by Herod. The disciples say, the gig is up. I guess this isn't really going anywhere. This is not the time of fulfillment. So they all go back to work on the Sea of Galilee. Isn't that story the very same at the end of the Gospels after Jesus rises from the dead? Do you remember what the disciples all do? They go back and get their daytime jobs back. So it's this pattern of behavior where they don't understand exactly what's happening. You know, in the Gospel of Mark, Mark doesn't really have a story in, in, in a timeline of John being arrested and beheaded by Herod. In fact, John does, Mark does not talk about John the Baptist's arrest and death until chapter 6 of Mark, at which point John the Baptist has already been beheaded. And now he and his disciples get the news. So when did the arrest happen? Well, the arrest happened after Jesus left, John's arrested, the disciples go back to fishing. So when this story starts, Jesus has come out of this period of purification. He now heads up into the northern part of Israel, Galilee, where these lost 10 tribes used to have their, have their homes. And then he starts calling these uh, disciples who have gone back to their day job. And so does that make sense? If you put the gospels together, that's probably exactly what happened. 
That's why they all knew each other. Otherwise, it looks like Jesus is just a guy walking down the street. Nobody knows him. And it's this unbelievable story. But if you put all the Gospels together, the sequence I just described, baptism, Jesus is tempted, John is arrested, John's beheaded, Jesus comes out, and he starts it over again. And so, all right, let's say you buy into my timeline. Point number two. Why would you believe they would still follow Jesus? Well, in John's gospel, of course, John says he's the Lamb of God. What would that mean to these guys? What is it, do you remember, that Jesus says to them when he calls them? He says, this is the time of fulfillment. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, if you remember, that is John calling people to repent. What Jesus adds to it, the kingdom of God is at hand. The time has been fulfilled. What the heck is that talking about? Well, you know, in our own time, if you remember the Left Behind series and all the apocalyptic end of the world kinds of movies they have been making in the last X number of decades, um, it's always about this biblical prophecy. And, and isn't this like election exactly like the end times and the Pope? He, this is the kind of guy you'd expect at the end times, blah, blah, blah. Well, that human phenomena of trying to read the future and understand it is just part of our mental furniture. We're always looking out into the future. Why? Because the future is where hope is at. And Jesus is playing on this because in the first century, there was messianic fever, right? I think everybody's heard that if you've been hanging around the Catholic Church for a while. But consider the specific um, prophecies that Jesus's um, proclamation, this is the time of fulfillment, actually refers to. So go back to Daniel 2, the book of Daniel. That's in the Catholic Bibles. I know part of it's in the Protestant Bible, I think. Part of it isn't. Maybe the whole thing isn't. I don't really know. But you can't really make sense of the Gospels um, without Daniel 2. And so here's the part of Daniel 2 I'm referring to. And this is King Nebuchadnezzar, who's had a dream. None of his wisest men can, can tell him what the dream means. So he has to call Daniel, this smart Jewish kid, to come in and explain it to him. So this is that part of the story, which is in Daniel 2. To me also, this is Daniel talking because the kings called him because no one else can, can tell him what this dream means. And so this is it. To me also, this mystery has been revealed. Not that I am wiser than any other living person, but in order that its meaning may be known to you, O king, that you may understand the thoughts of your own mind. So the king's vision was uh, clay with, made out of four different materials. Here's Daniel's recounting of the vision. In your vision, O king, you saw a statue, very large and exceedingly bright, terrifying in appearance as it stood before you. Its head was pure gold, its chest and arms were silver, its belly and thighs bronze, its legs iron, its feet partly iron and partly clay. And while you watched, a stone was hewn from a mountain without a hand, being put to it, and struck its iron and clay feet, breaking them in pieces. The iron, clay, bronze, silver, and gold all crumble at once. Finds the chaff on the threshing floor in the summer, and the wind blew them away without leaving a trace. 
But the stone that had struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream, the interpretation we shall also give in the king's presence. Do you remember Jesus refers to himself as the, as the stone not hewn by hand? Um, it's a re reference back to Daniel. And so here's how Daniel explains this. In the lifetime of those kings, and he is seeing the different materials as being representative of, of four kingdoms. Babylon, well, I shouldn't say it. He doesn't explain, Daniel doesn't explain it. In the first century, people reading Daniel 2, written several centuries before, read it the way I'm going to tell you. But here's how Daniel explained it in Daniel 2. In the lifetime of those kings, because these are all kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed or delivered up to another people. Rather, it shall break in pieces all those kingdoms and put an end to them, and it shall stand forever. That's the one stone that rolls down and crumbles this statue. And so here's how they understood it in the first century. That it refers to four kingdoms, the Babylonians, the Persians and the Medes, the Greeks and the Romans, five kingdoms, but four kingdoms really, Babylon, Persia, Greek, and Roman. Well, in the first century, whose regime are you living in? The Roman regime. And so what's supposed to happen in the Roman regime? That God is going to pick up this little stone, strike the statue, and break it. God's going to be, bring the Romans crashing down. And then Daniel 2 continues. That's the meaning of the stone you saw hewn from the mountain without a hand being put to it, which broke in pieces the iron, bronze, clay, silver, and gold. The great God has revealed to the king what shall be in the future. This is exactly what you dreamed, and its meaning is sure. Well, Nebuchadnezzar didn't like that because it meant his kingdom, the Babylonians, was coming to an end. And three more crummy kingdoms were on the way until the Jewish Messiah came. And, you know, as I pointed out earlier, the Romans even knew about these, uh, these prophecies. Suetonius and Tacitus talk about them. They think the Roman emperors, Titus and Vespasian, are the fulfillment of the Jewish prophecy. It's really interesting because in their histories, they then talk about the Christians. And everything's right there in their books. But for the Romans, they just don't see how it all goes together. They couldn't foresee what we know 21 centuries later that Christianity is now everywhere. It is a different kind of kingdom, isn't it? And so Jesus, the time of fulfillment of hand, you're in the fourth kingdom. The kingdom of God is at hand, Jesus' kingdom. Repent, metanoia, change how you think, and believe in the gospel. But there's another reason. Remember I said there were three reasons why these guys would immediately abandon their nets and followed? One of them is they all know who Jesus was and they were ready for the end times because they'd already been listening to St. John the Baptist. Two, they knew about Daniel too and this whole story because they are looking forward to the deliverance of Israel. But there's a third reason. And again, it's about going deep into the Old Testament. How about that phrase, fishers of men? Well, the word that Jesus uses in Greek actually is fishers. What the heck does that mean? Friends, here's what you need to know. And you always come to Oral Valley Catholic to know what you need to know. Go back to Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 16, verse 14 through 16. Listen to these words. This is Jeremiah 
talking about God delivering his people. It's God delivering his people. Here's what it says. Therefore, days are coming, oracle of the Lord, that's the prophet, when it will no longer be said, as the Lord lives who brought the Israelites out of Egypt, but rather, as the Lord lives who brought the Israelites out of the land of the north and out of all the countries to which he had banished them. These are the lost ten tribes, which are from Galilee. I will bring them back to the land I gave their ancestors. So Jeremiah, who knows that 200 years before the Assyrians have captured the northern ten tribes, he is boldly making this prophecy that God's going to go out. He's going to bring these ten tribes back. Now, listen to the big finish in in verse 16. Look, oracle of the Lord, Jeremiah, I will send many fishermen to catch them. After that, I will send many hunters to hunt them out from every mountain and hill and rocky crevice. And so fishermen, why does Jesus say, I will make you fishers of men? Because he is telling them that this is the fulfillment of Jeremiah 16, 14. Well, it's just part of human furniture to be trying to understand what the future is. Did they really understand it? Because remember, When John was captured and beheaded, they abandoned him. Jesus came and fished him out. Then Jesus is crucified. They abandon Jesus and go back to their day jobs. But something happens, and they go out into the whole world. Because where are these lost 10 tribes? They're out there in the world someplace. And if the gospel's being spread to the four corners of the planet, well, you're fishing for all the people that are the descendants of those lost 10 tribes. God sends his fishermen. So when Jesus says, the prophecy, the time of fulfillment is at hand. Tick this one off. Jeremiah fulfilled. So this is an explanation of why this is an historically reliable text. This is why these guys abandon their job and start wandering around Galilee and up to Jerusalem where Jesus is crucified because They constantly believe that this is bringing about the kingdom of God, where at some level they may think that it's the restoration of the Davidic monarchy, but I think we Catholics look back on it and we see something very different. Jesus is the king. Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the last great word of God. If prophets speak about God, Jesus is the word that comes out of their mouth. Put it all together, and what you have is a surprising fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. So now's the time to take a look at how St. Paul, this zealous Jew Pharisee who stoned Christians to death, why he did a complete about turn, and now is talking very differently about what it means to be a disciple. We're going to take just a little time, and we're going to talk about Christian discipleship especially in the first century, and what it offers us today. So what's it mean to follow after Jesus? So you leave your net behind and uh, you follow Jesus, or you decide that you're called to stay in place in your marriage, and you're going to follow Jesus right where you are. Because 
Jesus obviously did not intend that everybody who believed would just uproot themselves, wander around begging for their food to spread this, this gospel. He chose men, these apostles, to go out and do this work. The, God, the apostles chose men called bishops. The bishops needed priests and deacons as their, as their responsibilities um, increased. That's all told in the New Testament. But everybody is called to discipleship. And that's what St. Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the second reading for today. And it's about what it means to be in place and be a disciple. Because being Peter is one thing, being mom and dad in a home is uh, something related to, but not completely identical with. So here's the thing. Imagine two worlds. One's the old world, one's the new world. Two big circles that overlap. Where they overlap is where they're joined and they're joined in Christ. That when Jesus came, everything changed. But it's not over yet. The world is being born anew and we are living through the labor pains. And the most recent pain, our electoral process, is just part of the pangs of a new world being born. So Paul starts to talk to us about how we should live in this in-between time, between the time of the Old Testament and uh, the time of the kingdom to come, this time of the church. And so here's what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, starting at verse 29. I mean, brethren, the appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the form of this world is passing away. You want to be a Christian? You got to recognize that all of this stuff is going away. Even our beautiful parish, St. Mark, at some point there won't be a stone left upon a stone. People like to come to St. Mark's and then they tell me, and it is. It's such a beautiful church. But I like to tell them, yeah, it is a beautiful church. And the building's nice too, because the church is Christ's body. So what's Paul mean when it says, don't live, if you're married, don't live. From now on, let those who have wives live as though he had none. Does that mean you just go out and start dating or you ignore your wife or that, uh, if you have loss and sadness in life, you're supposed to just pretend it doesn't exist. Or if you actually have a job and kids you're responsible for, just don't worry about it because you're all going to die anyway. That is not what St. Paul is saying. What he means is, and you get it all through Pauline preaching, is let's not cling to this world. I mean, make, why make politics an idol? There is no way America will ever be the kingdom of heaven. Uh, we are moving through it. We have some of the same practices in America. This is pro-life, uh, the pro-life, a weekend of pro-life. Abortion was widely practiced in the ancient world. Jesus still preached and called people to follow him out of that world. Uh, and when he was crucified, uh, he said he had angel armies he could call on, but this wasn't the time for it, right? Because this is the time when people are going to make a choice. Um, Jesus is putting together 
a kingdom of the willing. Nobody is forced to follow him. But once you do decide to follow him, you have to have a bigger sense of what your life is and what the purpose is. If it is just to build up wealth or to have the romance you want in your life, all of those things, this is not Christianity. Everything that we have, family, property, job, friendships, are all lived in light that we are baptized into the kingdom of God. So in our Christian spiritual tradition, we would call this detachment. It isn't that things, relationships especially, we're supposed to love our neighbor. It isn't that these relationships are unimportant. Their importance is found in a relationship to God. So, uh, wow, you everything is there for the kingdom of heaven. It's marriage is a sacrament. Um, it's seeing your whole life as an altar, that everything we have is offered to God. Detachment, uh, understanding where all of the stuff in our life fits in is a fundamental aspect of humility because it says what our true condition is. There is no thing that is God because literally God is nothing uh, because a thing is created. A thing is of creation and God is not created. So God literally is no thing. Well, anyway, those are the gospels and the readings for today. Jonah, that's about... Uh, People hearing the preaching of Jonah, and they changed like the apostles changed when Jesus came and called them from the Sea of Galilee. You know, we're all called to hear and respond because that's at the heart of liturgy, how we live out this relationship with Christ. The Lord be with you and with your spirit. Liturgy is how we sanctify the world. Liturgy is how we remember to offer up our very lives um, to the very God who gives us all of these things which are not, in fact, God, but are a road to him if we use them correctly. And so I like that quote from Norman MacLean about uh, John the Apostle being a fly fisherman. Probably true for all I know, um, but it's something beautiful to remember uh, about Jeremiah and Jeremiah speaking the word of God that God would send fishers out into the world. Because I know from my own experience, fishing and catching are different things because they're spelled differently. But you never catch anything unless you're willing to fish. So think about evangelization this week. Um, maybe throw a nice dry fly out there and see what rises. This has been Oro Valley Catholic, and I'm Father John Arnold.